Hi, and welcome to the Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist at McMaster University. And along with geriatrician Dr. Richard Stramko and other healthcare experts, we're looking to help those affected by a dementia diagnosis. This includes patients and caregivers, as well as family and friends. We understand that a diagnosis of dementia can sometimes feel scary and confusing. This podcast, along with the rest of the Care initiative, was created in order to help relieve some of the stress that comes with a diagnosis. This series will cover a broad range of topics relating to dementia and will look to provide answers to many of your questions. Before we get into the discussion, I want to note that this episode was initially recorded live on Wednesday, September 26, 2018, and the video recording can be found on the Care website on our events page. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Dr. Anthony Levinson, and I'm here today with Dr. Richard Stramko. And uh, today we're going to uh, be coming to you with our first live event uh, about our Care initiative. And uh, our goal today is to uh, give you an introduction to Care to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the steps to being an effective caregiver of somebody with dementia and uh, to help to answer some of your questions. So um, we also look to get feedback from you, not only questions that you can post on our Facebook site, um, but also any feedback that you have on this live event or also on our resources on the iJerryCare .ca website. So, uh, welcome, Dr. Scramco. Thank you, Anthony. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Levinson. I'm I'm hoping that uh, Richard, you can tell us a little bit about uh, some of what led to the creation of iGerry Care. Definitely. So, I'm a, a geriatrician, and I work mainly um, dealing with medical issues for older adults, and they'll come into the clinic and. Commonly, we encounter people that have thinking and memory problems that alter their function, and so they qualify as having uh, dementia. And oftentimes, I'll spend between an hour and an hour and 15 minutes assessing them, talking to their family members, trying to figure out what's wrong with them, and then I'll provide them with a diagnosis. Let's say I diagnose them with Alzheimer's disease, which is one of the types of dementia. After that, I only have 15 minutes to tell them everything they need to know about you know, what causes dementia, how it's treated, what tests do they need, um, how do you plan for the future, and uh, how do you get access to the community supports you need, which is just, it's just not enough time. And so it's difficult to, to provide all the educational needs or provide for the educational needs that caregivers have. So that's frustrating for me. And it's also frustrating for the caregivers. It's frustrating for all of the other um, associated allied health that work in the clinic. So we really want to provide a high-quality, evidence-based educational content to caregivers. We know that the time constraints for caregivers are um, they're very restrained in how much time they have. So we want to keep the information focused to high-yield points. So you know, what do we see that caregivers are asking us for every day in clinic? And, you know, we see a lot of people that have dementia. So what are the common issues come up? And how can we answer that in a curated resource? So instead of having to spend all of their time searching for information, they can find out what they need to know about 
where they're at in their dementia journey or their loved one's dementia journey um, very quickly and, and easy. I think the, the other thing that we hear a lot is, uh, you know, it's, it's so much information for a patient or their caregiver to take in as well. And depending on uh, how much time you said is a resource, but even just taking in the volume of information when uh, you may be receiving, you know, difficult news about a diagnosis. So, um, so I, Jerry yeah. Care is really meant to help uh, tackle some of those real-world challenges that we see. Yeah. So we also did a, a needs assessment in our clinic. We wanted to find out what people actually wanted. And so this is what the caregivers in our clinic asked of us. They said they wanted something that their healthcare provider is giving to them that's been vetted already, that they could trust, that's based on the most recent science. So that's the big reason why we created IGERI Care in the first place was because the caregivers asked for it. So, um, you know, we were, we're using this term caregiver and, and uh, when we're talking about caregivers, we're referring to uh, informal family caregivers. Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of experience in the clinic. I have patient experience with caregivers. Tell us a little bit more about what we know about just how many people are informal family caregivers in, in Canada and Ontario right now. Yeah, so there are over 500,000 people that have dementia in Canada and over a million people that are providing care to them through informal support. So usually, most commonly family members, you know, uh, spouses, daughters and sons, or potentially even more extended family members. And then also, even in some cases, neighbors or friends. Yeah. And so it's, it's not just family members and it's not just a, an issue with, um, you know, support for family, it's support for the entire, entire group of people that will support these people with dementia at home. Yeah, it's different, definitely a community. And I guess it, it ties in a little bit with, you know, um, the other reason that we created iGerry Care and some of the resources specifically is it can be a bit overwhelming at times, not just the volume of information, but uh, you know, you think uh, n nobody gives you a manual. <laughs> There's no, yeah, uh, you know, okay, so what do I do next? So mm -hmm. um, the reality is that many family caregivers, whether they're family, friends, they become kind of extensions of the healthcare system. Absolutely. They provide very valuable um, health services and social meeting the needs of their loved one with dementia. Uh, so, you know, part of what we wanted to accomplish was some education and training, uh, an overview, background information that could assist informal family caregivers to, you know, be the best caregiver that they could be. So uh, it is a challenging uh, job and we hope that people find the resources uh, helpful in terms of being able to carry that out. Absolutely. And, you know, just to add to that, you could be providing care from 20 hours a week to 80 hours a week. And, um, you know, you don't get to choose when you provide care for, for the people that have dementia. It, it's an on-demand job. It's very challenging. It's very time-consuming. And also it's very complex, right? You're, you're helping to provide functional supports for somebody on all aspects of their life. It could be, you know, shopping and cooking, but also getting dressed or, or bathing and 
trying to navigate the healthcare system for many of their medical needs. So it's a very challenging job. So let's talk a little bit, uh, I guess, concretely about <laughs> some of the main challenges that you're seeing uh, when you're in the clinic. What are some of the main challenges that caregivers seem to be facing? And what are some, uh, in broad strokes, helpful strategies uh, that you would advise to caregivers? Sure. You know, I think uh, a first challenge that we see is that people don't understand dementia very well. It's a, a complicated illness and there are many different types of dementia and they impact people in different ways. So when we say dementia or major neurocognitive mm. disorder, a very complicated term, we're referring to an umbrella of many different illnesses and they all have their different flavors and they'll impact you know, the personality changes or the memory and thinking changes that that people see. And so a good first step is understanding the type of dementia that the person has and then what you can expect them to progress because it is a, a progress-like because it's a progressive illness which will get worse over time. And I think that's a, a first step is trying to find uh, the appropriate diagnosis and then trying to get better educated on um, the patterns of behavior or cognitive impairment that you may see. I feel like in the past as well, sometimes um, it, it's almost like people might be given a diagnosis. Sometimes people are actually not given the diagnosis, but they are dealing with the challenges of the cognitive impairments. But it's almost like in the past, somebody was given a diagnosis and it's like it ended there. Whereas mm -hmm. it's really the beginning of uh, a journey. There are many, many people living lives with dementia and you know that's part of the better somebody can understand as a caregiver some of the issues that they may be facing uh, on that journey uh, the better but um, you know I, I think that's important to know that many people live for many years with a diagnosis and uh, some people may have uh, milder forms and um, their level of function will be different from people with uh, more mm -hmm. moderate or severe forms of of the various dementias. I think too, um, there's um, uh, an issue around acceptance and understanding what the um, what's modifiable in the process and what's not modifiable, yeah. right? And so um, oftentimes we'll see people be getting frustrated with the person that has dementia about them not being able to do certain activities uh, that they used to be able to do because their memory and thinking problems made it a challenge for them. So they might not be able to go out in public places that are loud or have conversations with many people in social networks or social settings that they used to before and you know their partner may find that very challenging. Um, but sometimes altering expectations around what they can and cannot do is the most important side of that and you know understanding what's a modifiable condition and what's not. And we found that people that understand first, as we talked about yeah. before, what's happening to the person that has dementia allows them to accept certain things that they're no longer able to do and help the caregiver understand that it's there's nothing to, to blame the person that has dementia for um, and, and kind of move on with their life. And we find that that helps caregivers uh, decrease the amount of stress or frustration that that they're experiencing. I would agree. I think the you know two elements there of uh, improving the understanding and a certain amount of acceptance 
can help to overcome the the two things that we often see. One is frustration of the caregiver toward the person with dementia. You know, why are you not remembering this? I told you this. It's like if you have a better understanding around some of the memory impairments, it can still be frustrating, but you may be more patient or less likely to get angry for、mm-hmm. something. And then、uh, the the manner in which the caregiver may blame themselves for something that is beyond their control as well. I'm trying to get you know、uh, to do activities. With my、uh, spouse who has、uh, dementia, but if that person has a lot of apathy, and that means they don't necessarily feel motivated to participate, it's not the caregiver's fault that the person does not want to do these things. So the understanding, the acceptance, are kind of at the heart of a lot of the topics that we cover, and and we hope that they're of benefit. So. Mm-hmm. Um, before we move to the live questions in a minute, I just want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors that、uh, really underpin、uh, the opportunity for us to develop the iGerry Care website and also、uh, host these live events and the other resources on the site.、Uh, funding is provided by the Canadian Centre for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, powered by Baycrest.、Uh, additional funding was provided. By the Jarrah Center through Hamilton Health Sciences,、uh, McMaster University, the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation,、uh, the Alzheimer Society of Hamilton Halton Region, and、uh, our team from the Division of E-Learning Innovation、uh, are outstanding. And、um, wanted to thank the McPherson Studio here at McMaster as well for allowing us access to the studio today for this live event. Again. This video,、uh, the recording, and the archive will be available through our Facebook page if you want to watch it later, and also through our iGerryCare.ca/events page. So I'd like to move now to some viewer questions, and oh, here's a very good question.、Um, in somebody's heard the term respite care. And can you describe, I guess, the circumstances around what is respite care? How might a caregiver take advantage of it? Sure.、Uh, respite care, in, in simple terms, is taking a break, which is a very important,、um, I think, learning point for for caregivers of people that have dementia. So, taking a break or getting respite、uh, can be provided in a few ways.、Um, one of those ways is that. We have a community support organizations. So in Ontario, we have the local health integration networks that will provide supports in home, and、uh, they can provide people to come in and stay with、uh, the person that has dementia for periods of time, so that the caregiver can go out and do things like you know pay their bills or get their groceries or have some time to socialize, so that they take some time to themselves. And we find that that's so important.、Uh, It's、uh, an issue that caregivers, I think, struggle with sometimes, in that they feel so responsible for the person that they're providing care for that they need to be there for them twenty four seven. The problem with that is that it leads to burnout, where people feel,、um, you know, that they they can't accomplish what they need to, and they feel stressed, and they feel anxious, and they feel like they can't go on. They feel hopeless and isolated, and that is something that you want to avoid because if you can't provide Uh, it, sorry, if you're not feeling well enough to care for somebody,、um, you're not going to provide them with the best care. So it's a bit of a challenging situation. 
The other way that uh, people can get respite care is paying private services. So instead of government-funded uh, public services, there are private services that, um, you know, companies that will come in and provide the same service. So somebody will come to your house and stay with the person that has dementia so that uh, the caregiver can get out of the house. We have um, uh, sort of an, an excellent follow-up uh, question from a viewer in Oakville. Um, what would be the, the proper time for a family? Like, at what point in the course of the illness would you need to sort of plan for extra supports? And um, what about decision-making, I guess, about long-term care? So, you know, the, these are challenging questions, and they're going to be a bit individual mm-hmm. depending on your family circumstances. But are there, in your experience and, and in terms of guidance, what do you see as some of those markers for having additional supports uh, in the home or, or making decisions around long-term care? Sure. So um, there are two broad care categories of supports. And we, we talk about supporting somebody's day-to-day function in their environment, most often their home, whether that's an apartment or a house. The higher level or more complex functions are called instrumental activities of daily living. They include things like making a grocery list, being able to get yourself to a grocery store and find everything, doing your housework, paying your bills on time, being able to take your medications. And those usually um, require higher level processing from a brain power point of view. The other uh, types of function uh, are called basic activities of daily living. And that includes walking around, taking a bath, eating. So they're much more dependent on just kind of basic skill levels. And so we find that the families are the most most often the people that are likely to take care of the higher level or instrumental activities of daily living. And so you get to the point where, you know, somebody lives on their own and they don't have, you know, family members. But if we're talking about informal caregivers, um, you know, they'll most often be taking care of those. The further that the illness goes along and the more challenges people are having with their memory and thinking, they won't remember to take their medications, for instance. Somebody may be able to come and and help remind them to take them or ensure that they're taking them. And then certainly when you get into the basic activities of daily living. So if somebody can't walk on their own, they can't make it to the washroom on their own, then that gets really challenging. You're more in a a level where people would need, need nursing support. And then a few other things that we commonly see are when people lose control of their bowel or bladder function, Mm -hmm. then it's very challenging for people to take care of their loved ones uh, at home. And then finally, um, behavioral problems. So dementia can be associated with changes in people's personality and behavior where they'll get more uh, violent or they'll be screaming Calling out out behavior. Calling out, yeah. There are many different forms. Safety concerns. Safety concerns, right. So, you know, somebody's wandering around or, you know, they can't cook on their own. They're forgetting pots and pans on the stove. And I would say that a lot of it has to do with the comfort of the caregiver. Yeah. And so, you know, there's no hard or fast rule. We go from being, you know, just needing a a tiny bit of support to needing complete support. But we find that it's if there are behaviors emerging that are really challenging to deal with, people lose control of their bowel or bladder function, or they're needing help with their day-to-day supports, that's really when you're concerned. And I think people would be surprised at how much they can do to keep their uh, loved ones in uh, In their own home or own environment 
with some basic supports from people like the the Lin, or if you're in different provinces, whatever you know, there are there are analogous or similar home support uh, organizations in those. And, and I think, you know, one of the the follow up questions from Oakville was, you know, who who should I talk to, or what are the community resources? And I think this is where you know there are chapters of the Alzheimer's Society nationwide, mm -hmm. and they provide some uh, talking with your family physician, or if you have a geriatrician or a geriatric team, uh, mm -hmm. they often have, you know, occupational therapists or people involved in home care, irrespective of uh, the province that you're in. And they will often do an assessment of, Absolutely. you know, what, what are the needs. I, I think conceptually, sometimes people do maybe wait too long mm. to look at those community or home supports. And the caregiver may then be burned out. Mm -hmm. And so they may be sort of very, very frustrated. And sometimes introducing care providers into the home uh, actually can uh, can be helpful and it may give uh, a little bit of a break to the uh, the primary caregiver and it may also um, introduce people into the home so that the person with dementia may become a bit more comfortable or used to the idea of supports. Yeah, I think it's really important to introduce the concept of the occupational therapist which you know, a lot of people are unaware of what they do, but they, they do amazing assessments of each one of those, you know, activities of daily living and instrumental activities of daily living to find out what people need. And, you know, the worst thing I say to people, you know, that, that could happen is they could ask the LIN or CCAC or the public health, you know, support side of things for supports. And uh, in many instances, they're not needed initially, but you'll also be given a case manager in the community who will then be act as a kind of a quarterback for you. So, you know, you'll have somebody to call that as things change or get worse and you may need more supports, then you can call them and ask them to come back and reassess things. Um, a family physician or a cognitive specialist, like a, a psychiatrist or a neurologist, oftentimes will be able to fill out forms and ask for specific requests as well. So there's a few ways to, to go about it. And you mentioned the Alzheimer's Society. So you know, going to the Alzheimer's Society, there's an excellent program called First Link, right? When people are first diagnosed, and they can help you kind of outline the different uh, strategies you can use for navigating the system. So just knowing that there are, um, you know, multiple levels that you can approach this at within the, the healthcare system, especially so you don't feel alone and isolated. Yeah. And it's really, it's complicated stuff. So, you know, you need a team of people backing you up to really... Um, get the job done in the community. And actually, we've, we've had some uh, comments from viewers saying that uh, ongoing support uh, for one viewer anyway through the Alzheimer's Society, they found that to be a, an, an excellent kind of education and, and a link uh, for helping them with their caregiver needs and, yeah. and, and linking with community services as well. So, um, you know, in, in the iGerry Care lessons, uh, we do talk about some of those uh, community uh, mm -hmm. services. So there are sort of day programs or, or programs uh, that will help to transport uh, somebody to a day program, uh, give them sort of stimulating activities, and also relieve a bit of the uh, the caregiver stress of um, looking after somebody twenty four seven. I think I think that's really important, um, and this kind of gets to the concept of taking breaks. You know, so we mentioned respite care before, and 
doesn't always have to be, you know, uh, people coming into your home. There are, are different avenues. So people can drop uh, their the person with dementia off at a specialized care facility where they can stay for a few days or a week or a, or a few weeks. And then you mentioned uh, the day programs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, we don't want to be all doom and gloom about dementia. We, we do mention, you know, a lot of the the bad things that can happen, but people can still live very full lives in great, the meantime, right? A, a great comment from a, a caregiver in Nova Scotia who said, you know, my, my mom was diagnosed with dementia two years ago. She's not doing too bad. She's still going out dancing regularly. Absolutely. And, yeah, I think that so, highlights that. Uh, and there are lots of warm stories like this where, where people are able to experience a good quality of life despite having dementia. So, you know, for all the viewers out there or listeners out there, it's a very um, complex disease and everybody's at different stages. So this kind of gets back to the point of having a team that can meet with you and understand your specific needs for where you are at as a caregiver at this point in time and where the person with dementia is at at that point in time. And the just, you know, getting back to the day programs again, it's like, you know, um, I'll be amazed that people can be feeling sad and isolated and alone and they'll just be stuck at home. And we do something very simple, you know, get them access to darts, which will pick them up and take them in. And a few weeks later, after they've been getting out and, you know, they play games and they can talk to people. And uh, some of the day programs also offer exercise classes. They'll come back and it's better than any medication I could have ever prescribed for them. You know, it's like it's very low tech, low science interventions with high uh, impact on the quality of life of the person that has dementia and uh, the caregiver because the caregiver gets a bit of a break too. So We, we should specify that uh, darts in Hamilton is right. the public transit. We're not recommending uh, setting people up with cigarettes, are we? Yes, <laughs> Dr. no, or playing the game darts, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, a very challenging question here that I think gets to the, the different life circumstances. This is from a caregiver who is working full-time, but also sort of the, the, the full-time caregiver for uh, their family member with dementia. And, uh, you know, there's obviously no easy answer for these, but what are some of the other ideas that are sometimes helpful, I guess, in the setting where you may be the primary caregiver, but you're also working full-time and trying to juggle um, that's the, I think that's the hardest thing to do. Um, you know, the first thing I always tell people is to understand how hard their job is because sometimes they're just going through the motions day to day and they think that everything should be fine and they're wondering why they themselves are feeling tired and, and burnt out. But it's a hard, a hard job to, to have. And I think you'd be surprised, like, you know, not waiting too long to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And asking for help could be through the formal supports that we've talked about, your other family members or extended family members to give yourself a break, and even neighbors. So we find that, you know, there are people that are willing to help out within the community, and all you have to do is ask. So if somebody's been wandering, for instance, telling all of your neighbors to keep an eye out for the loved one. And then certainly if there's a time crunch as well, you know, seeing if one of the neighbors that has known the person for many years would just be willing to come over and sit with them so they're not lonely. Um, you know, people are reluctant sometimes or 
you know, it, we, we've talked stig about stigma a lot. They feel like they can't let people know that there are problems with memory and thinking or that they feel too proud and they should be able to do everything on their mm -hmm. own. And you just can't do it all on your own. You need to ask for help. You need to ask for help frequently and uh, you need to find help through formal and informal. And I think, you know, some of the questions coming through are, um, you know, again, talking about the different circumstances, you may have the challenges of being a younger caregiver with a full-time job, uh, but uh, there are also challenges for some of the older or more mature caregivers who may have their own health issues, uh, may or may not have uh, mobility challenges. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we've got a few other tough, tough questions here as well, but... Um, so one of the questions here, uh, again, going back to the, the issue around is there an optimal time to introduce things or make a transition? Uh, this is a question about is it easier to think about making a transition to a supportive living environment uh, earlier rather than later? Um, so that this was a, a dilemma that somebody was thinking about now because they're they don't want to leave home. Uh, it's an older couple. There are issues, but um, they're they're sort of struggling with the timing of it. Would things have been different had they uh, made some kind of transition earlier in the course of the illness? Right. I um, I tend to find that you know, well, we're all different people, right? And we're we have different approaches. We have different approaches to lives. We all come from uh, different backgrounds, and we have different values. And that's the thing I find challenging mm. about answering questions like these is that there's no uh, specific recipe for any one person. Um, the people that would tend to hold on um, as long as they possibly can and are of the more stubborn type, shall we say, mm. you're not going to change their minds. They're going to be stubborn and hold on. And I think that's something to that gets back to what we were talking about with respect to a modifiable uh, set of circumstances or things that you can't change. And people's personalities, when they're stubborn, it doesn't matter oftentimes when they get demented, they, they may stay it, very it may stubborn. They may get uh, uh, amplified. They <laughs> may get amplified. And so um, understanding that these decisions take time and they don't happen in any one day, oftentimes you'll know when it's gotten to that point and you'll be uncertain for a period of time and then things will really start to go downhill and, and you'll understand that that's the time to transition. Now, they mentioned, would it be easier if it happened earlier? Well, yes, it definitely would be easier for some people if it did happen earlier, um, but you just won't change their personalities. They won't accept it. And so you'll just be kind of up a, up against a, mm -hmm. a brick wall and you won't be able to move it. De I guess depending on... So acceptance on, in that situation yeah. is kind of... A little bit more easy. I guess a couple um, in some circumstances depending on your means and the region there may be uh, various levels of uh, housing available so uh, that can sometimes work well if you have an older couple and they can transition you know to sort of semi-independent living or supportive housing and then to you know a higher needs thing but uh, that's not going to be available uh, to everybody. The other issue that is important to consider is the one around safety. So um, in this particular circumstances that the viewer was writing in, there may also have been some safety concerns. And I think there are certain things you can do, like you can unplug 
devices like stoves or ovens. Uh, you can remove them sort of from at the breaker. Uh, mm -hmm. So there's certain kind of things, but if safety concerns are, you know, the risk is just can't be tolerated at a certain no, point. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you may need to um, get other advice about. Uh, about oh, that. that's that's a great point. Before we move on to the rest of the Q&A portion of the show, I'd just like to take a few moments to tell everyone a little bit more about the iGerryCare.ca website. Here you can find a number of lessons which cover a range of topics, from the basics of understanding dementia, management options, brain health, and caregiver wellness, to name a few. In addition to these lessons, you'll also have access to our live event video recordings, as well as email-based learning options. We're constantly looking to raise awareness about iGeriCare, develop new educational materials, and maintain this as a free resource for caregivers. If you'd like to help, you can support our program by clicking on the Donate button on the top right portion of our website. 100% of your donation goes to iGeriCare. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the show. So now to some of the other excellent questions and comments that came in uh, from caregivers. How important is nutrition for someone with cognitive impairment? Uh, it sounds like this person has not received an, a diagnosis of dementia, uh, but there's cognitive impairment and uh, that person and their spouse are in their 90s. Mm -hmm. So nutrition can be very important because nutritional deficiencies can be a cause of cognitive impairment. So specifically vitamin B12 may be actually a treatable cause of dementia. Uh, most commonly it's not treatable, but there are instances where if the vitamin B12 levels are low enough, you can replete them by uh, giving somebody vitamin B12 and their cognition may improve. So that's important. The same goes for thiamine and some other, um, some other uh, nutrients. So those are rare uh, for, in terms of how many people are actually presenting with cognitive impairment, but they always must be considered when somebody comes into the clinic. Um, if somebody is generally malnourished, then that impacts all aspects of mm -hmm. their life. So if they're not getting the nutrients they need and they're not getting the number of calories they need or protein that they need, and that can be very detrimental to someone's cognition as well and just their general over, overall ability to function. So. It might not be a cause of dementia on its own, but certainly if you do have cognitive impairment, um, it can make things worse. And this usually comes into the final side of the nutri nutrition paradigm is, are there specific you know, nutrients or superfoods or anything mm -hmm. like that that can improve your cognition or magically cure your Alzheimer's disease? And the answer for that is no, there's nothing that we've found to date that can actually boost you know, your level of, of cognition or reverse the effects of Alzheimer's disease. So, you know, oftentimes people may talk about coconut oil, which alters the metabolism in your brain supposedly, but that hasn't really borne itself out in the science yeah, to there's date. There's not been any no. uh, strong scientific evidence to support yeah. uh, coconut oil. The one oil. thing, there is some mixed evidence for vitamin E, but, you know, I don't, I don't really recommend my patients take that necessarily because it's not strong, convincing Reproducible, think, uh, a good, a good healthy diet, yeah. which is probably generally good for your overall health as well as brain health, mm -hmm. and uh, a balanced diet nutritionally. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's probably the the best advice. Uh, yeah. there's 
um, some some limited evidence that suggests the quote unquote Mediterranean diet. Yeah. Um, but you know, I would say good, healthy, yeah. well-rounded diet. It's not going to be a miracle cure, but as part of no. generally healthy lifestyle habits. Yeah, and I mean, the the nice thing about the Mediterranean diet is that there's more evidence for it to decrease your risk of cardiovascular illness. So if you're going to have something that has some benefit to your cognition, although limited, and some benefit, you know, with respect to cardiovascular disease, then, you know, go for that. And you can Google Mediterranean diet and look at recipes and things like that to find out, you know, if you're going to switch to that, what it, what exactly you'd need to do. The other, the other thing is sometimes vitamins can get quite expensive. I think a lot of yeah. people buy into expensive supplements. If you have a good healthy diet, uh, you probably don't need most uh, additional vitamin supplement supplements, um, and there's there's probably no uh, miracle. You can your body can only absorb uh, limited yeah. amounts of them, but uh, definitely worth getting assessed for one of those specific vitamin deficiencies. Mm -hmm. So um, this was another excellent question, which was, um, what are or can you describe the stages of dementia? And um, I guess it also ties in with a follow up question, which was how do I know when to stop being the primary caregiver? So I think those questions went hand in hand in, a, in terms of understanding kind of the progression, the stages, the severity, and is there a particular point at which it may be, you know, beyond scope in some ways to, mm -hmm. to still be the primary caregiver? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And there are, uh, there are different stages. It's a continuous process. So it's hard to mark off exactly when, you know, somebody is changing. But generally, you know, we all have memory and thinking changes as we get older. We not, might not be able to process things quite as quick or, you know, do skill testing puzzles as quick or remember everything that we would have remembered before. But so, you know, everyone has a little bit of change in their cognitive uh, or memory and thinking abilities as they get older. There's a first stage, which is called mild cognitive impairment, where you're noticing that your cognition has changed somewhat. You're having more problems doing the things that you used to do. And if you come in and see a doctor, they'll be able to do tests, uh, pen and paper tests that will show that, you know, you're not functioning as well as most people would in that set of circumstances, but you're able to do your day-to-day -day functional activities, meaning you can still get to the grocery store, you can still get your taxes done, they may take you a lot longer than they used to, and you've noted that, um, but you're still able to get, get by independently. And then you transition into a mild dementia where you're still able to do most things for yourself, um, but you can't function independently uh, on your own. And this is kind of borne out in the tests that we're doing as well. So one is the mini mental state examination or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Um, you know, and so you'll be able to see the scores slowly getting worse. And in the moderate stage, that's when you're requiring significant amounts of help to get by uh, day to day. You may see some emergence of more personality changes um, uh, as well. People may have more emotional lability and be less flexible in their thinking. They may need um, queuing to take all of their medications. They won't be able to get to a grocery store. And then finally, the, the severe stage uh, happens when you're almost needing complete care day to day. Uh, you, you know, somebody's attending to all of your needs all of the time. And it's that transition from moderate to severe where, 
you know, most often we're finding people um, requiring escalating levels of care, like transition to a nursing home. What what I would say is also just, I guess, a, a simple recap of what you just described so well. There's mild cognitive impairment. Sometimes people talk about MCI, mm-hmm. and uh, that is uh, not not dementia. There's some objective changes in memory, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not causing a functional impairment. Yeah. And then at the early stage or mild stage of uh, dementia, there's some functional changes and some mild changes with memory or other cognitive impairments. Uh, moderate and severe really refer to the progression of mm-hmm. more deficits and uh, more functional impairments Absolutely. In with, with severe stage requiring uh, a lot of assistance. So the, the important thing to realize is dementia is not one disease, it's multiple different diseases and we outline uh, those various types or the most common types of dementia within the iGeriCare lessons on the website. And that may also have an important mm-hmm. impact on when somebody may need to stop with respect to being the primary caregiver because you know certain types of dementia may have more prominent uh, behavioral symptoms early on in the course of the dementia which Mm -hmm. could be very challenging or other dementias uh, may you know there may be symptoms like incontinence that make Mm -hmm. it more challenging so the 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 issue I think as we talked about in the live event is there's you know there's going to be a lot of variation between families and caregivers what are the other supports Um, it definitely the severity of the dementia also has an impact and then maybe the type of dementia and the type of associated symptoms like behavioral symptoms may be more challenging those are all great points those are great points Um, so another great question here are there support groups for spouses who have lost a partner to dementia um, and I guess um, you know we, we mentioned earlier uh, community resources like the Alzheimer's Society one many of the Alzheimer's societies and many uh, local and, and regions do have support groups mm-hmm. for uh, caregivers of dementia and I think many people do find them incredibly helpful because uh, it can be a very isolating job as, as a caregiver. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about um, sort of the, the caregiver support groups? Yeah, um, we've definitely had um, caregivers in our clinic that have found them incredibly useful. And again, I, I always caution people, you know, some people will find it useful, some people won't, but you'll never know unless you actually go and try. And so um, whether it's an individual memory clinic that's putting on a support group or whether it's the Alzheimer's Society, Occasionally, there are also additional community um, groups that will put on uh, um, support networking events as well. So, you know, we have the Hamilton Council on Aging and uh, here, but you'll be able to find things as well, or, or hopefully we'll be able to find things in your community. Um, and so, you know, oftentimes people are hesitant to, to go to them initially. They wonder what they might gain. But after they go, they're so glad that they went to be able to understand that they're not alone in their process uh, or their journey. And other people are struggling with the exact issues or similar issues to 
um, to what they're experiencing. So. And, and what, what we will say is we, we all know uh, caregivers of patients whose uh, love, you know, they were a caregiver of someone with dementia and their loved one uh, passed away, and they have continued to attend those support groups and actually often act as a very helpful uh, resource uh, for uh, for newly diagnosed people with dementia or caregivers just coming in because of their experience with the dementia journey. So I think um, uh, the other place, if there is, if you have had a loved one passed away, is most uh, areas or regions have uh, groups focused on bereavement. So I think you may continue to derive support uh, if your loved one has passed away from the caregiver support groups that you can find. Um, if, um, if you find that uh, you're more overwhelmed with uh, grief or sadness related to the loss, something like a bereavement group may also be um, helpful and appropriate. And sometimes we, we found as well, um, you know, the people that have struggled with loss, uh, they've lost the person they were caring for, as, as you said, they feel empowered to help other people mm -hmm. that uh, are now struggling with what they've just been through. So, you know, um, people may need to take time afterwards to, to grieve their, their loss, but sometimes people feel very empowered to maintain their contact with those groups as well. And an uh, anonymous shout out to uh, people that helped us in the development of the iGerry Care Lessons yeah. and website because we... Uh, definitely, as part of our testing process, we really benefited from the wisdom of our yeah. uh, reviewers. So. The super users that have been through uh, all aspects of the illness and are very involved in the community. But yes, we're very appreciative of all, all the people that provided input for us. One of the one of the caregivers sent in a uh, a really interesting and um, valuable comment about the importance of balancing. Uh, what they term respect and risk. So balancing the respect for the person with dementia, um, respecting their autonomy, uh, not you know getting frustrated and cutting them off. And I think that's what they were talking about, respecting their prior wishes and, and their autonomy, but also balancing some of that respect for autonomy with uh, risk and safety issues, and mm -hmm. and I I think they've uh, they've really hit the nail on the head with a, a challenging dilemma that faces many caregivers at a certain point in the illness. Absolutely, I think it's always safest um, to err on the side of autonomy or the individual's ability to determine you know what's happening happening to that to them or or taking place in their lives because you know. As we mentioned, dementia is a continuous process and people retain a lot of their memory and thinking abilities earlier on in the disease and haven't changed that much and are still very much aware of what's happening to them and they can even be aware of the fact that they have a dementia mm -hmm. and are struggling with it. So those people should be very much involved in their care and what's happening to them and what's not happening to them. And then there are other people that even at the beginning of the illness don't understand that they have uh, a disease, um, and we call that lack of insight. And you know, we can also help them, you know, deal with the process uh, and leave them to make decisions until they get to the point where they're really causing a safety risk for themselves or the people around them. So, for instance, you know, we mentioned fire risk earlier on. If people are are insisting that you know, um, 
they be given access to their cigarettes but are you know finding burnt mm-hmm. blankets uh, or or things like that uh, around um, or they're not able to remember to take the stove off then then that's a big problem or, or turn the stove off and take the pots and pans off um, off the stove so once that starts to happen and there's they're starting to be a risk to themselves we've kind of balance, gone over that balance point where we need to intervene and say that even if they want something a certain way, uh, we can't handle that uh, collectively. You're really putting, in some cases, putting not just the caregiver at risk, but imagine a, a fire in a, an apartment building Absolutely. that uh, is really putting uh, many at risk. So there's lot, lots of particular uh, safety issues. Uh, driving is another one in the early stages of the illness uh, where that sort of respect for autonomy and uh, and uh, safety risks come into play. So uh, I'd encourage you to look through our um, uh, lesson on uh, safety. I think mm-hmm. we, we have uh, one that covers some of those. Maybe make a checklist and uh, talk it over with your healthcare team, something mm-hmm. like that. To, uh, but a, a really excellent point around that balance between uh, respect and risk. So speaking of uh, balance, uh, another great question came in. Um, It was a a working caregiver, somebody working full time, also working as a uh, family caregiver. And and they had a comment about what what can you say about work-life balance, Mm -hmm. uh, lifestyle, exercise, nutrition with regards to caregiving? Yeah, that is a great question. Um, Sometimes we picture work-life balance as, you know, a 30, 30, 60 split between the various activities in our lives and that we should be able to do all of those on a daily or a weekly basis. But sometimes that's not possible as a caregiver. And so you may have to picture a balance in life over the course of a month or over several months where you may be at it full time for seven weeks and then maybe you get a week off. And so I think the first step is setting some form of limit for yourself if it's possible and asking for help. You know, the earlier the possible, and as we discussed previously, all the different ways that you can ask for help so that you can protect some time for your tact, some time for your seeds that are enjoyable for yourself. And right along, you know, the issue that comes right along with that is then the feeling of guilt of being away from the person that you're caring for. And so it's completely normal to feel guilty, but you also have to deal with that and understand that to be the best caregiver for uh, the person you're caring for over the long run, you have to take care of yourself. So uh, even if it's short periods of time, getting out and exercising, you know, whether it's walking, running, finding something you enjoy, making sure you're eating appropriately and staying socially um, connected to the people that you care about. You know, at the very least, find something that you enjoy doing and get out and, and do that. You know, so if it's too painful for to exercise or, you know, do those things, then, um, you know, find something you enjoy and make some time, even if it's a small amount of time to do it and don't feel guilty. So I, I think... Or try um, not to feel guilty. I think there's a... What, what has now come to attention, because it was not well studied before, is that many informal family caregivers do not have work-life balance. They have their paid work and their unpaid work as caregivers. So, yeah. in fact, um, you know, data and studies now looking at 
the caregivers in, in Ontario, caregivers across the country show very, very high levels of stress, high levels of mental illness and burnout in informal family caregivers, which is truly one of the reasons why we um, helped to produce iGeri Care was to try to give people more tools. And, you know, we have several lessons that really emphasize, you know, getting help for the caregiver, care for the caregiver. You need to look after yourself or you can't be an effective caregiver. So, you know, it is important if you are feeling overwhelmed and stressed, you, you may well be at risk of uh, depression, anxiety, um, burnout. Um, and so it's very important that you talk with your own healthcare provider. I know you, you are probably spending a lot of your time focused on the care needs of the person with dementia that you're the caregiver for, but uh, we can't emphasize enough that it is essential that you look after your own health and mental health as a caregiver. And some of these suggestions around uh, work-life balance, around getting uh, additional supports, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those can help. Uh, but it, you know, it is really important that you, as the caregiver, um, keep tabs on your own health, eat well, stay active do whatever you can to get support so you can carve out some um, downtime for yourself so that there's a marginal amount of balance. And this brings us to our sort of final question for uh, this um, uh, additional session, uh, which was around uh, how to accept help. And I think the, the, the post or the comment that came in actually was, was um, this, this can cut both ways. So there are sometimes cases where, you know, um, the patient, the person with dementia, may not be accepting of help. They don't want to let the home care person into the home or they refuse to go to the doctor's appointments. And then I think what we also see sometimes is the caregiver who uh, finds it hard to accept help as well. They feel compelled to do all the caregiving themselves. Even though they're feeling burned out, they are reluctant to access home care or community services. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the, the, the accepting of help uh, issue? Sure. Um, you know, it, I think we touched on it um, enough with respect to balancing risk and harm for the person that won't accept help and uh, the person with dementia not being able to accept help. And um, the the challenge is there's no easy way to try and make somebody understand. And so really what we try and do in the clinic is just let people know how hard it is. And we've come back to this point a lot of times. And, um, you know, it's not to take pity on caregivers. It's not to... Uh, you know, demean what they're doing in, in any any way or try and make it more negative than it needs to be. It's just that once people understand that it's a very challenging job, then they're more like a normalized that it's very hard for caregivers, then sometimes they're they're more likely to accept that help and be accepting of kind of everything that's taking place um, around them. And that, and that may be um, for caregivers reaching out to other family members, or mm -hmm. if the family members have been reaching out, allowing them in. Um, it may mean uh, reaching out to various home care supports or the, the health care team to just say, we're on overwhelm, we need additional resources. But uh, I think, as you said, sometimes it's a case of the, uh, the having to work 
and maybe even persevere mm -hmm. if the person with dementia has a reluctance to have that help. It might be incumbent or necessary for the uh, the caregiver to say, you know what, I need this help. You need to allow these people in and um, and yeah, look after your own health as a mm -hmm. caregiver. Um, seek out those resources and help prevent the burnout. So you may feel like you're on top of your caregiving. But having that additional help and uh, reaching out for some uh, community or home resources or, or other family supports may help to prevent some of the, the stress. So. We also don't mean to say that, you know, if you get supports into your house or if you get some sort of respite, that all of your problems will go away, right? Or that caregiving will suddenly become easy because it won't. Um, it, it, it's, it will be a significant challenge. But... Um, we look for reducing harm or reducing the burden to make it um, sustainable. So you can do it over the long term or the long haul instead of, you know, trying to take everything on and do it all your own and, and reaching that critical stage of, of burnout where you can't handle anything. So I think that's important too, you know. We're all working with limited resources and a limited system in an imperfect world, but if we can kind of come together and work as teams, then we'll... Uh, be more likely to be successful as a group of people that are trying to provide care collectively uh, for people that have dementia. So that uh, concludes our um, secondary accessory session where we had a chance to answer some of the excellent uh, questions and comments from uh, our live event. Um, I want to thank our sponsor again in this separate video, our main sponsor being the Canadian Centre for Aging and Brain Health, um, powered by Baycrest, uh, as well as uh, our Division of E-Learning team, mm -hmm. uh, the Jarris Centre through Hamilton Health Sciences, the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, and uh, you know our other partners that contributed along the way. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our website so you don't miss a thing. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, let us know how we can improve. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.